I would hope, I don't want to say this is a prediction, but end of 2021 and all through 2022, we may see this tsunami of, of new music, and I'm not really sure what it's going to sound like. You're listening to Having a Chat, the show where we take interesting people with interesting taste in music and talk to them about the music that they love. I'm Alex Spears, and this week on the show, something really, really special for me. A few years ago, a friend of mine sent me a music podcast featuring an interview with Noel Gallagher done by a man named Alan Cross. That interview planted a seed in my brain, which eventually grew into this show. There is perhaps no one more knowledgeable on alternative rock and roll music than him, so we're very excited to have Alan Cross with us to chat about some music. This is Having a Chat. Alrighty, Alan Cross, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Um, so the first thing I want to ask you about before we get into the song picks, um, you the, the way you do your show is you you, you take a, a step back and you look at the sort of the ebb and flow of different sort of subgenres. And I think you you do the, a really good job of putting it into sort of a broader context. You, you put a great deal of emphasis on sort of cycles of genres, um, cycles that I think, you know, people may not be able to see if they're too close to it. Um, so with, with that sort of lens on it, where do you think um, rock and roll is at at this present moment? Well, uh, for the first half of the 20th century, culture was driven forward by jazz. And everything had everything to do with jazz. Um, but then rock and roll comes along mid-1950s mid and pushes jazz aside. And it was the dominant thing for about 40, 45 years. Uh, then, in sometime in the 90s, it began to be usurped by hip-hop and rap. Uh, it was the up-and-coming music of, of, of that time. And if you look at the situation in the United States, which is the biggest net exporter of culture on the planet, hip-hop is the music that is driving culture in America. Uh, not so much rock and roll anymore. Now, that doesn't mean rock and roll is dead, and it doesn't mean that rock and roll is in second place everywhere. If you look at Canada, for example, rock is still the number one genre. Uh, and you look at other parts of the world, rock is still the number one genre. But hip-hop, R&B, and pop, or hip-hop, R&B, and rap, if you want to put them all together, are, are really, really making a push, making a lot of inroads globally. Uh, not unusual. This is what happens with, with the United States. Uh, it happened with jazz, it happened with rock, and now it's happening with, with hip-hop. So rock right now is in uh, a bit of a stasis situation. There is nothing really new happening with rock. I mean, the last real burst of, 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 of rock and roll energy that we saw was in the 90s with the grunge and the alternative movement. Mm -hmm. Since then, we've done a terrible time developing rock to uh, make it to the next level. And we're not really sure what that next level is. What we're seeing now is a bunch of songs a bunch of artists with individual songs that are making that are getting attention but there's no real scene there's no real one sound there's no nothing there's no center to right. rock and roll right now and i thought that might change with uh, donald trump getting in, in elected in the u.s yes and tony blair a conservative uh um in the in the uk boris uh, johnson would, you mean for me boris johnson, johnson yeah yeah boris johnson uh we we would see um uh, you know, with, with, with conservatives, uh, reactionary type politicians, you might see the youth pushing back and get deeper into loud guitar rock, right? which is what's happened many, many times over the, in the past. Yeah, of course. Hasn't really happened yet. Yeah. But then COVID comes along and messes up everything. We don't really know what new music is being made right now. Yeah. Um, everything has been shut down. Everybody has been working by themselves. Uh, there has been some stuff leaking out, but you need the freedom of movement and the freedom of expression for anything to actually explode. So right. I'm hoping that once we get things under control with the pandemic, 
that there is going to be this giant outpouring of new music and a whole bunch of sounds from a whole bunch of artists that we have never heard from before right. who just decided to take up music in some form because they had nothing else to do. Yeah. They were in lockdown. They were in quarantine. Yeah. So uh, I would hope, I don't want to say this is a prediction, but end of 2021 and all through 2022, we may see this tsunami of, of new music. And I'm not really sure what it's going to sound like. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting. So there, there's two things that I want to touch on. First is you, you did this great episode of your show um, where you, you touched on the role that streaming has to play in that, where there's sort of, you know, you, like the long winded intros and, and lead ins into a song are now, you know, gone. no longer a thing completely gone. Like it, it, and, and it was really, really interesting because, you know, I, I have a number of close friends who are musicians and these are things that, you know, they had articulated to me the fact that like they feel creatively inhibited by the fact that they need to get their songs on streaming playlists. Hundred so percent. That that is having a role in it, yeah. just on a large level. I, I do. I mean, let's look at a band like Tool. Yeah. Last album had five songs on it. Each of the songs were ten minutes long. Right. Uh, that in the way in the way people use streaming, that doesn't work. Uh, streaming rewards people or rewards artists and songs that get to the chorus quickly, that have a lot of hooks in the beginning yeah. and is, are, is over in less than three minutes. Yeah. And artists are discovering that if they release a lot of short songs, that means they can cycle through a lot more songs per listen. Yeah. And that means they make more money. Meanwhile, Tool, who's got this 15 minute epic, yeah. they're getting paid as much from a streaming service for 15 minutes of music as Little Nas X does for a minute and 57 seconds. Right. So uh, let's take a song, for example, um, U2's Where the Streets Have No Name. Yeah. Bono doesn't start singing until like a minute and a half into the song. Yeah. And what we've found on, on streaming music services is that people tend to, a, a scary number of people tend to bail on an unfamiliar song yeah. before the song is 30 seconds old. And if you're listening to Where the Streets Have No Name, which I think we can objectively agree is a great song and a big hit. Yeah. Uh, how, how many people would have stuck around for, 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 for the vocals? How many people would have stuck around for when the edges guitar first comes in? Right. And, and that's, that's of concern. Um, and you have to understand that no one on a streaming music service gets paid until the stream is at least 30 seconds old. Right. So everything is being thrown into that first 30 seconds to drag people across that finish line right so that they get their you know fraction you know, of a cent fraction fraction of a cent yeah right that's what it's all about yeah so i mean I, I, the other the other part of it that i'm that i'm interested in and, and this is something that has been sort of touched like i guess the the comparison between rock and roll and rap in the uk um where you have a lot of sort of you know rock and roll stars from the 90s guys like you know like the Gallagher brothers both pointing out that the um, that the grime stars have the same level of attitude and kind of punchiness that that rock and roll stars have had historically and that you're almost seeing a sort of a cultural shift where that is now the genre that's going against the grain. Um, do you do you agree with that assessment and, and just uh, sort of generally I do. Where you I sit mean, on that? I mean, jazz used to scare the crap out of people. Yeah, uh, because it was well, first of all, it came from you know, African-Americans, which we right. just do not have. Uh, rock and roll, same kind of thing. And it was these, you know, it was R&B, you know, at a higher, with a bigger backbeat, a harder backbeat. Um, and then, you know, these these kids like Elvis twisting their hips, right. uh, you know. Oh, heavens. Heavens. And, you know, Beatles with long hair and all the rest of it. So, you know, these were the things that frightened the generation that had come before. Right. Um Rock and roll is not frightening anymore because it's been around for 60, 70 years. Yeah. And there are several generations of people who all agree that, you know what, rock and roll is really good. Oh, they got long hair. Oh, they're gay. Oh, they're, they, 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 you know, dance provocatively. Oh, big deal. But, you know, drive and, uh, grime and trap. Oh, that's different. That's, yeah. that's freaking people out because it, it, it's, it's kind of like what we saw in the late 80s and early 90s with the beginnings of gangster rap in the, in the U.S. Right. You know, these, these people are, are thugs. These people are, are, you know, uh, flouting the law, they have no morals, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, we should do something about them. And the moment you say that is when the kids jump in and go, 
yeah, this is what I've been looking for. <laughs> yeah, it gives you something to go against. So um, I want to get into your song picks. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna kick things off uh, with the Who won't get fooled again. Um, talk about a song with a long intro. I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> what do you? I'm gonna fight anybody anybody who says that this is not the greatest rock and roll, the most perfect rock and roll song ever written. Um, I'll fight you on it. I, I really will. The reason every this song has everything in right. um, you know a great riff, a great arrangements, a timeless arrangements, uh, some fantastic performances by all four members of the band, and it's timeless. It's a timeless, rebellious theme to the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, I never get tired of listening to this song because it ticks every single box that I think the perfect rock and roll song needs to have. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, it, it, they are, they are a band that were funnily enough introduced to me um, when, when they played at the Super Bowl, weirdly enough, which, which I realized I, you know, that that was sort of, I, I'm not sure how well received that performance was, but I remember watching that and just thinking like, holy shit. And there was a while where this song for me was, was pretty, consistently uh on the rotation did you uh did you catch that performance and what did you make it i did i've been a who fan since uh since the 70s yeah so i have uh i have always 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 uh thought these guys were great when somebody would say hey beatles or stones i'd always say the who
Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Um, all right, so next we're going to get into um, the Stone Roses, a band that has become one of my favorites in the last few years, just as I've sort of been progressing through the sort of Britpop Madchester thing. Um, we have I Am The Resurrection. Uh, what do you like about the Stone Roses? Uh, they were just a fresh sort of sound. So this is 1989. And if you were working in alternative radio at the time, it was a bit of a slog right. um, because we were fighting against hair metal. We were fighting against pop and there was, you know, you had to go really deep to find artists that, uh, you know, were, were, were really sort of the kind that you would put on repeat. I'm not saying that right. there weren't any, but there was at the end of the eighties, a, a lull, in uh, the kind of rock that was coming out of North America. There was some, you know, there was Pixies, there was some hardcore stuff, but it was, it was hard. So we began to turn to the UK and we heard about this thing happening. And so apparently in in Manchester and uh, the first band I remember hearing about was the Happy Mondays. Right. Uh, And then one day um, a 12 inch record came in from Silvertone Records. This would be an import. Remember this is before the internet. So things travel really, really slow. They had to travel right. physically, not over, you know, phone lines. Uh, and she bangs the drums came in and uh, put it on. And I, 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 I don't know how many times in a row I played it. I thought this, this is fresh. This is familiar. This has got energy. This is, this is brilliant. Yeah. And then I get my hands on the album, and I, I find this last song, "I Am the Resurrection," and I, I found it to be such an uplifting song. Uh, with a great melody, great set of performances. And then the last four minutes is one of the finest jams ever committed to, 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 uh, to tape. Uh, John Leckie was the producer and you've got um, the rhythm section and John Squire just going at it. It's like, wow, what a great piece of music. Yeah. Yeah. I never get tired of hearing it. Yeah. No, I mean like the, the the mad Chester thing and, and and I would, I would like, whether the the Stone Roses, you know, they're, they're considered part of the big three of the Madchester bands, you know, like with the with the Inspiral Carpets and the Happy Mondays. Um, but, you know, I see them as being very different, but they do have those sort of those more jammier moments, like at the end of this song, where they really dig into what to me defines Madchester and, and what... Uh, for my friends and I uh, consider to be Manchester, which is basically whether you can picture Bez from the Happy Mondays dancing to it. To me, that's right. Uh, it, it, those jams gave them an opportunity to indulge their influences. Yeah, which was was you know it was the uh, the UK dance scene in the 1980s. It was the jangle pop of psychedelia in the late 60s, early 70s. It was influences from you know, the Beatles and glam and all the rest of it, all in this, this fresh new package that was just infectious. Yeah. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested with them because they were a, I mean, they were a, a sensation in the UK, but they never really landed here in the same no. way. Why do you think that is? I, I, I think they tried, well, a couple of reasons. First of all, they were with Silvertone Records, which is an independent record label, which they hated. Yeah. Uh, they had such a terribly restricted contract with them that they, would, they didn't want to um, they, they cooperate. Yeah. Uh, that brilliant first album comes out. They have no proper representation in North America. Uh, they're picked up by some alternative radio stations like, you know, CFNY and WFNX and K-Rock and a few others, and that's mm-hmm. it. Um, and then they were uh, hamstrung. They were unable to record a follow-up in a timely manner. Now, you look at o- Oasis, for example, uh, they record definitely maybe, and then, you know, what is it, a year and a bit later, they come back with What's the Story Morning Glory. Now, can yeah. you imagine if the uh, Stone Roses had that same opportunity? They released yeah. the first album in May of 1989, and if they could have a, a follow-up in, let's say, the spring of 1990, uh, yeah. they, you know, and had they been with a major label, right? Uh, because with with Oasis, you know, definitely maybe is is a, is a good record. It was under Creation Records, but Sony saw something coming, so they helped with the distribution, got them into the United States. Minor hit. Uh, What's the story? Morning Glory comes out. By this time, Creation has been purchased by Sony, 
and Sony goes to town on them, and even they were surprised yeah. by how sex- successful it was. I mean, 15, 15 million albums. Yeah. Um, so the Stone Roses uh, were hamstrung by their record label, and they, there's a certain amount of sap- self-sabotage there in how they, they handled their situation. Yeah, because well, didn't they record the Second Coming in the same studio that Oasis recorded Morning Glory at? Yeah, they took it, like a year and a half to do it. Oh yeah, and because the 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 amount of of pressure on them to come up with an album equal to forget better than but equal yeah. to than that first record, and they had five years to do it, and they, you know, there there was a there was a they were being at that point they were they had broken out of their deal with Silvertone and were signed to DGC records in the U S DGC kept sending money and they kept wanting to hear, um, you know, what their money was paying for. Uh, it turned out that it was basically a lot of cocaine. Right. <laughs> and they, they wrecked a whole bunch of cars, uh, one yeah. day for fun. Um, and when the album comes out, I mean, we have love spreads and, uh, and the other big single is, uh, hang on. Oh wait, there wasn't one. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, it was it was a bit of a disappointment. So then they yeah. break up, and they're gone for twenty some years. Uh, then they get back together, play a lot of shows in the UK and Europe. Fantastic. They play one show in North America, and that was at Madison Square Garden. I was there. Wow. And uh, didn't bother to play anywhere else. They didn't. How didn't they do don't... Coachella? I don't remember. I thought they, they I thought they co-headlined Coachella with Blur, which I thought was like interesting. interesting. Yeah, you know, they, they may have, but it, it didn't make didn't make any yeah. impression with me. But yeah. they didn't play they didn't play you know Toronto, which are you kidding me? Yeah. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of other places they did not play, and it was like, wow, this is just stupid.
love that. Um, all right. So next we're going to get into Nine Inch Nails, Head Like a Hole. Um, Nine Inch Nails are a band that I, I've never really taken a deep dive into. Um, so bearing that in mind, perhaps how would you sell Nine Inch Nails to me? And, and what, what, do you like about, uh, what do you like about this tune? Again, this is from personal experience. Um, years ago, and this would be 19... It's either late 88 or early 1989, probably in 1989. Uh, we at the station, a bunch of us went to see Peter Murphy. You know, Peter Murphy, the singer from Bauhaus. He was on a solo tour for his Cut album, which had the big hit Cuts You Up on it. Right. And uh, we wanted to see, you know, the legendary, or sorry, the album's called Deep. Right. Called Deep. And we wanted to see the legendary, you know, front man from, from Bajos. Yeah. So uh, we went and we we're, you know, all at the back, you know, at the, at the bar. Mm-hmm. And there was this loud, noisy band on stage that nobody was really paying attention to. And I remembered very clearly at one point late in the set, the band launched into something that sounded familiar. And it turned out to be a cover of Queen's Get Down, Make Love from the News of the World album. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching, because I was doing it at exactly the same time, watching the whole room go like... Right. <laughs> and at that moment, everybody was completely riveted by what was going on stage. I think Hand Like a Hole was the very last song. And at that point, the band destroyed their instruments. Right. Uh, and again... That at that point, it's like, okay, there's something going on here. Right. I want to be part of it. Uh, tell me more about this band. And then I, I had became a, a you know, a, a diehard fan from, from the very beginning right. and have followed Trent and interviewed him a whole bunch of times. I wrote a book on Nine Inch Nails right. uh, just because I was looking for something well-produced. I wanted something loud and I wanted something angry, but it also had to be tuneful. I wasn't just going for like a, oh, give me an example. Like I like ministry, but ministry, you know, after a while, you, I, my eyes bleed. Yeah. Uh, a band like Germany's Einstein Neubauten, uh, I mean, they play vacuum cleaners and lead pipes. Right. And industrial music, and I love industrial music, but after a while, it's like, uh, yeah. yeah no. Your ears start to bleed a bit. Your ears start to bleed. And, you know, that's the point. Yeah. Um, right. But with Nine Inch Nails, you know, you've listened to that first album, Pretty Hate Machine, which I yeah. think is, is still one of the greatest debut albums of all time. I mean, there's not a bad song on it yeah. if you're into that kind of music. And, um, you know, he, you know, Trick comes and goes. He loses me every once in a while, but he always comes back with something that makes me go, yes, yeah. I remember when, and I'm glad that I've stuck with you all this time. So, again, you know, so much music preference is stuck in his subjective experience. Right. And uh, there was mine. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, and the thing with him, I have, I've come to admire him um, as a guy just because I've seen him interviewed in so many like documentaries and stuff like that. Like, I, I, I particularly remember kind of being struck by him in the in the Rush documentary where he sort of he just seemed like a very thoughtful and soft spoken guy. And that wasn't him. Yeah. Back in '97, he was strung out. Yeah, man, I remember interviewing him. In, in 97, and he was in bad shape. You know, a lot of alcohol, a lot of cocaine, a lot of heroin. Yeah. Um, then in the early 2000s, this would be around 2004, I meet him again in Los Angeles, and he's sober and buff and right. uh, self-aware of what he went through and, you know, wouldn't drink anything more than black coffee and, uh, you know, affable and would answer you know i'm standing with a microphone in front of him yeah. and he's saying stuff about his, 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 his addiction uh, period and i'm thinking this is a microphone you do know that i'm recording this right <laughs> um and then you know he's just taken off with with all his other projects yeah um you know all he needs now is is a, is a tony award and he's got a, an emmy a grammy and an oscar yeah so, he's got the egot uh, the egot so uh you know Good on you, Trent. You have, you saw, I mean, this is a guy that partied with Marilyn Manson. Right. And lived to tell about it. Yeah. So. Good on him. Good Good on him. him. Yeah, for real.
All right, so next we're going to talk about the Beatles. Um, you know, it's hard to even know where to begin with the Beatles, but we're going to listen to Hey Jude. Uh, what do you like about this tune? Uh, again, subjective experience. I mean, I thought it was always a really good song. Uh, you know, runs seven minutes, and the last three minutes and a bit are, are just the same thing going over and over again. But it, it is such an uplifting, such a melodic, such a powerful sort of, of musical experience on record. I thought, okay, this is really good. Yeah. Then I went to see Paul McCartney live. And I swear to God that when he did Hey Jude, uh, people leapt out of their wheelchairs and threw away their crutches because right. it was a healing moment. Uh, I've seen him do it uh, four or five times uh, mm-hmm. in, in this century. And uh, each time it's like unbelievable. Just, yeah. just, I, I saw him at the uh, desert trip. That was probably, you know, the, the greatest uh, rendition. I've, I've seen him do this. They did a desert trip in front of 80,000 people. Mm-hmm. And I just never wanted it to end because it was such, first of all, that's Paul McCartney. Yeah. Secondly, that's Hey Jude. Yeah. And third, he's got four generations of people singing every note. Yeah. Um, and it just, it was, you know, you're in the crowd, you're part of this very rare musical experience, yet one that has a history that goes all the way back to 1968. Yeah. And you're all able to share in it because you all know it. And the guy that wrote the song, the guy that sang the song, he's up on stage and he's singing it with you. And I cannot, I mean, all of us cannot imagine a world without, you know, guys like Paul McCartney or Bob Dylan or Mick Jagger. I mean, they've always been there. Yeah. And there's also this feeling that, you know, he's almost 80. And how much longer will we have this world to which we've been accustomed for over 55 years? Yeah. It's, well, not 50, you know, over 50 years. How, How are we going to... How are we going to live without them? Yeah, without Paul McCartney. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so uh, I, I want to get back to what you said about, like, you know, the multi-generations all singing this song. And and that that's something that fascinates me, just like um, the, the sort of multi-generational appeal of music and, and how, in many cases, music can truly live, you know, well beyond the lives of those who created it. So what what is it that you think you know, more broadly allows songs to do that. But, but specifically, what is it, do you think, you know, about Hey Jude that allows it to have such a strong resonance throughout the generation? Well, the point is it never, it didn't until we, well, it did, but not to the extent that it does now, because unless your parents or older brothers or sisters were into the Beatles, you may not have really been exposed to them. Right. But with streaming music services, yeah, you are. Yeah. Um, that's one thing. Second thing is in the last 25 years, maybe a little bit longer, parents want to be friends with their kids. Right. And they want to have some kind of common touchstone, which is music. And what we've seen over the last 25 years is this breaking down of silos, these tribal things where you had to, you lived within a certain musical silo for most of your life. Yeah. And you didn't stray from it. You certainly didn't listen to old music because that was for old people. Right. And you didn't listen to music that, uh, you know, the this person at school did because they're a weirdo. And you right. only listen to what you want. Now, though, because we have access to all this music, um, what has happened is that the prejudices and the biases against genre hopping and era right. hopping have all but disappeared. Right. When I was growing up, the, you know, okay, let's say I'm working at CFNY 1987. If I dared tell anybody that I kind of like the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and Rolling Stones, I would be ostracized. You betrayed the tribe. Right. And it would be the same thing if you were a rock fan and you said, you know, I kind of like Depeche Mode and The Cure and and, uh, New Order. Right. You, you gay boy, you, you... They were makeup that synthesizers. It's awful. You have betrayed the tribe. It doesn't happen anymore. Anybody, if it is a good song, doesn't matter the genre, doesn't matter the era, doesn't matter 
anything. I like this song. I do a lot of uh, teaching. And one of the things that I do on the first day is I ask for people to read the last 10 songs that they've played off their iPhone. And it's, you know, it's like, okay, Justin Bieber, Little Nas X, ACDC. Right. uh, Taylor Swift, Led Zeppelin. You know, it's just all over the place. And the only thing that matters is the song. Is it a good song? Yeah. And it, it also seems like just the fact that there is no marginal cost to like, like financially to adding those new songs to the no. library. It's like, it's not like, you know, you have to go to the record store and you have to spend money to do it. it just the barriers to moving outside your silo, as you described it, are there's They're nothing. Yeah. yeah. Now back in the old days, even the biggest record store would stock maybe a hundred thousand titles. Right now you have 65 million. And yeah. cost you nothing to yeah. explore it, and uh, you know all it takes is a lucky trick of the algorithm, and all of a sudden you're in a completely different world yeah. that you would have never otherwise known about. I mean, one of the things that I was looking at uh, this was early this year or late last year is that if you're between the ages of 18 and 24, uh, and you were, they did a survey. Spotify's always looking at these things. They did a survey, and they they found out that uh, the artists that um, are, are being discovered the most by this 18 to 24 mm-hmm. year old cohort. Um, Grateful Dead, uh, Tony Bennett, and um, Billy Holiday. Holy now, cow. I'm sorry, I'm 17 years old, or I'm, eight, I'm 19 years old. Back in my day, I would, Billy Holiday, come on. <laughs> Tony Bennett? I mean, that's my grandparents' music. But he did an album with Lady Gaga. Yeah. So people go from that to Tony Bennett himself. Yeah. Holy cow. That's crazy. That's quite the the list. I couldn't believe it. I I really couldn't believe it. Now, I was actually really quite encouraged by this. Yeah. Because if we have a generation of people who are willing to acquire influences – from a hundred years of recorded music, yeah. What kind of music are they going to make themselves? Yeah, I think that's. Uh, and, and to go back to what you were saying earlier, you know, everyone's locked down, setting up basement studios with their bands, you know, listening to loads and loads of stuff. I uh, I can't wait to see the results. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song. Have found her now. 
Um, so next we're going to get into um, the final thing that we're going to listen to. We're going to listen to uh, 2112. Um, this, so, you know, I, I heard the episode of your show where you talked about Neil Peart, and I have to say that I, I drew many parallels between us. You know, I, I too, uh, you know, teach drums to make money uh, throughout university. And, uh, you know, I, I also am a drummer because I saw Neil Peart. I, I saw him play on, um, actually, on the Rick Mercer Report. Oh. Not, and that was that was what did it for me. Yeah. Um, but uh, what do you, uh, you know, what do you make of, uh, of Neil Peart's lasting legacy? And, and, and why did you pick this album? Um, again, subjective. Um, I, back in the day, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, we spent... Uh, an inordinate amount of money on audio equipment. And the goal was to have the loudest, clearest, most accurate audio system that you could possibly have. And me and my friends would go from audio store to audio store, auditioning speakers, pretending that we knew what we were doing and that we were possibly going to buy some speakers. And one day uh, we went into a place, uh, it was called Crazy Kelly's in Winnipeg. And we were listening to, I think it was some Sirwin Vegas speakers, either Sirwin Vegas or Altec Lansing's, one of the two. And the guy pulled out the Fly By Night album and put on By Tour and the Snow Dog, yeah. which has a couple of really cool drum breaks in it. And I thought, oh, what is this? Yeah. This sounds interesting. And then somewhere along the line, I, I somebody, somebody played me the first side of 2112. And I'd never heard anything like that. I was, I was always into some, I wasn't a prog person, mm -hmm. but I was certainly someone who appreciated, uh, I guess I call it accessible prog. Right. And uh, I heard everything I needed in the, that first half of that record. Um, and I decided that, okay, well, uh, I would like to be able to learn how to play at least the overture part. Right. Um, I'm going to have to learn how to take, I'm going to have to take lessons, which I did. And then um, when I got to a certain point, they asked me if I wanted to teach. And I said, okay, but don't pay me per lesson. Just put my fee on account and I'll buy gear uh, as, as we go on. So by 1982, I had a, an 11 piece silver Tema Imperial Star kit. 24 inch bass drum, six and a half inch deep snare, and a giant array of Peisty 2002 symbols like Neil had. Yep. And uh, I was in a bunch of different bands, and, and it, it was just the, the you know, I, I'm a hardcore introvert, but there was something about being able to play the drums like, or at least try to play the drums like Neil did, that brought something out. Yep. And, um, when they were on their R40 tour, by this time I'm friends with the management and the record right. label. And I go see the R40 show at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. And uh, uh, I, I, you know, I never met Neil, yeah. never met him that once. Getty, Alex, all the time. Yeah. Uh, I, know, I, know, I know Getty quite well. Uh, but before the show, uh, they introduced me to Neil's drum tech and they took me on stage and there was two Sets of, there was two kits. There was uh, a kit for the first part of the show, which they used on albums going back to whatever came after moving pictures. Right. Thank and then you. there was a second kit that were brought up for the after uh, for everything before that. Right. So I got to sit behind the twenty one twelve kit. And it was set up and tuned and whatever, just like that. And that was just one of those moments where it's like, yeah, we've come full circle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is pretty cool. I really like what I do for a living and yeah. I never thought I'd be sitting here. Yeah. Yeah. Behind the master's, uh, Behind, the master's workstation. Yes. The actual, what? Wow. And then of course, go, I'm sitting in the eighth row or something. Cause again, I've got, I pulled some strings and I'm watching and go, yeah. Yeah, this is why I'm sitting here. This is yeah. why, you know, if we want to go all the way back to the beginning, it starts here. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's crazy. Like I, you know, I, I too spent a bunch of dough just like 
building up my kit because I wanted to be able to, you know, it, it was for me, it wasn't 2112. It was YYZ. Fine, um, fine. That but, works too. Yeah, exactly. But I, I got just like, you know, I, I must, you know, I got like a rack of Roto Toms just like, yeah, because, because of course, you know, um, they're still around here. Somewhere, I had, but... I had, te- I had one point I had some temple blocks. Yeah. Why? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did. Because you just have them there. Like, well, you know, who gives a shit, right? Like yeah. it's, but yeah, I mean, and, and it was that tour. I, I was in Australia when, when that tour happened and I, so I did not get to see it, but I, I remember almost every night I would log on to YouTube and watch the uh like the the fan footage and i started to realize what they were doing where they were taking it back in time yeah um and even um playing didn't they do they did like cygnus x1 book two and then book one like they really did it yeah which is awesome they were were at the hemispheres album no so uh hemispheres then they went back to farewell the kings yeah so yeah. they had to do it in the wrong order. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of course. But yeah, I just, I just, I just remember at the time being, being so taken with that.
Um, all right, so we're we're getting near the end of the show now, and um, you know, I want to give you a chance to to plug uh, to plug your show. Just uh, that that's something that we always like to do at the end is just give our guests uh, an opportunity to plug what they've got going on. Where can uh, where can people check you out, and what can they expect to hear from you? Well, uh, ongoing history of new music. It is uh, in season. I don't know whatever. Uh, I've been doing it since 1993. I'm on right. show number 905 now. Um, so if you are in Toronto, it's on the edge in Q107. It's also on a bunch of stations across North America. Uh, the podcast, um, there's about 220-ish, 250-ish podcasts that are available for on-demand through all the different uh, platforms. Uh, we're approaching 10 million downloads, which is kind of cool. Holy cow. Um, still, haven't, still haven't got to uh, South Sudan, Sierra Leone, and North Korea yet, but I'm working right. on it. <laughs> um and yeah, other than that you'll just find me well whenever somebody dies you'll find me on television right uh because i seem to be obituary man <laughs> fair enough all righty man well yo thank you so much alan it, like as i said you know your your interview with noel gallagher um <laughs> literally was the like the reason why i wanted to start doing this show i you know we we started it at uh at cjru ryerson radio and now we've built this podcast out into something that's kind of like i mean i'm interviewing peter hook tomorrow no, and Bob, which cookies cookies great he yeah. will talk your ear off yeah and he, you know you ask him anything and he will answer you he is a fan, he's a great guy yeah, I mean, you know, and then and then I also, you know, I used your episode with Gaz Whalen to to prep for my interview with Gaz Whalen. Like, you know, I just it, it really it really is such an honor. Like, it, it, you know, talk about full circle moments. <laughs> Not to pump your tires too much, but it but it really started with you. So uh, so thank you. Alrighty, big thanks again to Alan Cross for joining us this week. Uh, you can find full episodes of this show wherever you get your podcasts or at havingachat.com. The show is produced by myself and Hillary Johnston, and all social media and marketing materials are done by Petra Walker. So don't forget to check us out on social media at Having a Chat. And also, if you listen through Apple Podcasts, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps us out. I'm Alex Spears. And we will talk to you next week.